Good evening, this is Alicia Bales, and tonight on the Local Public Affairs Show, I'm going to bring you a special interview with NPR's global health correspondent, Jason Bobian. Jason has family here in Mendocino County, and while he was in the area this weekend, he sat down with me to talk about radio, his work covering the global pandemic, and why stories from around the world matter. If you listen to NPR News, Jason Bobian's name and voice will be familiar. Over his two decades at NPR News, he's traveled all over the world, bringing us the voices of ordinary people living through extraordinary circumstances, from civil wars to nuclear meltdown. He spent most of his career in the developing world and has a bit of a reputation for covering disasters. So when news came out about an outbreak of a novel virus in Wuhan, China, he tried to get in to tell the story. Since then, he's helped us understand the scope of the pandemic throughout the world and has shined a light on the stark inequities revealed by the global response. We spoke Saturday on Greenfield Ranch in the hills west of Redwood Valley. This is my interview with Jason Bobian. I'm Jason Bobian. I cover global health for National Public Radio out of Washington, D.C. Um, been with them for a long time. You got your start at KQED. Correct. So my question, my first question is, so like, how did it happen? What was your radio origin story? <laughs> so I actually went to San Francisco State, and um, I was an English major at San Francisco State, studying, focusing on creative writing, um, and um, they had a cable radio station there, uh, so which was, I think nobody listened to it, like the the kids in the dorms could listen to it, but they had this whole facility down in the basement of the communications building, and they had um, records. And so I was working there, doing some of the PSAs and playing music, and so I, I kind of had a, I got a bit of an understanding of just how audio worked. And but I wasn't doing any news, and I was writing short stories, and I had really no idea what I was going to do when I got out of college. Um, and I did a few internships. I did one at like a literary magazine and I interned at SF Weekly. And, um, and then I interned at the newsroom at KQED and I just loved it. It was just, it, it was just so amazing to be handed a microphone, go out, um, interview people. It was in the middle of the time when, Mayor Jordan had just sort of declared, I don't know whether war on the homeless was the correct word for it, but it was this uh, quality of life measures that he was putting in place to basically try to move homeless people more into the shadows and off the street and, you know, giving the police more authority to sort of enforce, yeah, sleeping on the sidewalk and panhandling laws and things like that. And But it was turning into a real big political story at the time. Was this during the bagel wars when Food Not Bombs was active, trying food, to feed yeah, people? Food, yeah, Food Not Bombs was very active during that time as well. Um, and... KQED hadn't really been doing a whole lot. They'd been covering some of the stuff at City Hall and whatnot. And I just started going out interviewing homeless people, going to homeless shelters. I spent the night at the bus station one night and you know, just did a story about just even, it was just about sort of like the flow of people who came in and out of the bus station in the middle of the night and were sleeping there. And, and I just thought it was 
fascinating. And here was a radio station that was willing to put on the air. Eventually, they were all willing to put on the air the stuff that I was producing. I mean, I think the first story I came back with, and it was like the script was 21 minutes or something, and they had (laughs) absolutely no use for something of that length. But, you know, we worked it down. And um, yeah, so that's really where I got my start. And sort of I'm my love of doing radio. I always listen to radio. Uh, yeah, I I grew up up in Maine. Um, my parents were sort of part of the Back to the Land movement. Um, so we had many periods in our life where we didn't have any electricity or didn't have any televisions or anything like that. We only had radio, and radio was sort of my connection to the, to the outside world. So I'd always loved radio, um, but it was really at KQED that I really found that I love making it as mm-hmm. well. Can you talk at all about why radio, what about radio really got you? Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's something completely different from hearing a person's voice versus a quote that you have on paper. I mean, you know, just hearing someone sigh before they actually say what they're about to say can completely pull your audience into that narrative and that story in a way that on print it's hard to do even if you try to write out that you know that describe what they were like it can be so concise on radio and that's that's what i really loved about it was hearing these people's voices and the sort of the richness of of human language um yeah Right, and everybody's life experience and even what happened to them in the last week is coming through in the sound of their voice, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised knowing that you went on to cover war zones. I'm not surprised to hear that your first foray was out at the bus station in San Francisco overnight. Do You you then volunteered to go uh, cover a coup? <laughs> yeah, so I was at KQED, and then I ended up at WBUR in Boston, um, and... Then I had applied for the Africa reporter job for NPR, um, but I'd actually never been to Africa. And I had gone through like (laughs) four interviews with NPR about it. And um, clearly I was not like their their top pick (laughs) for this job, but I was doing some other work for for NPR, some um, different projects. And I happened to be in the building at, it, it was at that point, it was 635 Mass Ave um, in DC at NPR's headquarters. And I ran into the news, the, not the news director, the, he was the head of the, they called it the foreign desk at that point in time. And um, we had been communicating because I'd been applying for this job. And we started talking about this coup that had just happened. And he said, well, do you want to go? And I was like, sure. And they had me on a plane the next day to the Ivory Coast. <laughs> What do you have to hone in on? What do you have to tell? What stories do you have to tell from a war zone? Well, I think, I mean, I think you can tell pretty much any story that, I mean, I really think that telling the stories about how people are being impacted of people who can't get whatever they used to be able to get in the markets. And I I very much, one of the things about being a radio reporter is I have 
recognize that you do not need to be there where the shooting is. Yeah, I mean, there are. I I also ended up covering um, sort of the fall of Gaddafi in in Tripoli, and that there was a lot of shooting, and um, you know there were other times when it was really hairy. But actually, in that situation, basically the capital was cut off. The rebels were way up there. Um, you know, there'd been a declared coup and it was possible to just tell the stories of what was the conflict? Why were these rebels, what were their, what were their demands? What were they asking for? What, and just lay that out for our audience. Um, but also just like going to church on Sunday and just seeing what what are on people's minds at this point in time. And people are still living their lives, and even though they're in the middle of this collapse of whatever their right. society. Yeah, and you can basically say, you know, and you know, this week the rebels ended up taking this whole new area, and it's caused even more tension here. So you can tell the story of what's actually factually happening as sort of this. Um, frame and then in that tell the stories of individual people and how they're being affected and I always I've always felt that yeah those are the most powerful stories and so that's what I always look for um, and the amazing thing is when you go to these places it almost ends up getting dropped into your lap because it's all around you and once you start asking people about how they're being affected people just start opening up and um, you know some people don't want to but you move on to the next people. There's other people that do want to tell the story and let the outside world know what it's like that um, their country is now fallen into this civil war. You've done this a lot of times. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, quite, quite a few times, yep. Um, especially when I was... So I that was 2002 when I first went over to... to to Africa for that coup in the Ivory Coast. And then there continued to be a lot of, uh, um, yeah, conflict in, in West Africa and Liberia. Things in Sierra Leone were starting to cool down, but there was still a lot of active fighting in Liberia at that point in time. Eventually Darfur um, erupted. Um, Sudan just, you know, not even counting Darfur, it's South Sudan and the, the conflicts there. Um, I ended up covering things in the, the Congo as well, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, which is also sort of this rebel uh, insurgencies that would, things could be completely calm for a while and then things would be terrible. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that was covering Africa. And then, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, I do feel like I've had a very interesting career, right? And then I ended up in Mexico City. Um, when I was in Mexico City, the Haiti earthquake happened. Um, so I ended up covering the Haiti earthquake. Um, was one of the first reporters to, to get in get in there. Um, th that was sort of an incredible time period. I mean, I ended up covering the Fukushima disaster. Um, uh, her um Taipu Hainan, Hainan in the, the Philippines it was just like at, at that point <laughs> one of the interesting things was like if you got I, I sort of got this reputation for being 
willing and able to cover these kind of things. And so I was, I was really covering a lot of disasters. And there were also seemed to be a lot of disasters happening, like one after another. Um, so I was, yeah, I was kind of going all over. But at the same time, I was based in Mexico City. And this was in, you know, the middle of the drug war. Um, so even that was at times fairly hairy, um, covering, covering Mexico and just trying to um, tell that story. Um, it, yeah, while staying, staying safe. I mean, just even living in Mexico was, was quite difficult and challenging. Um, yeah, just in terms of the corruption and, um, yeah, the involvement of security forces with criminal gangs of one sort or another. Um, Did you ever feel personally unsafe because of the coverage you were doing? Um, so a lot of the feelings of unsafe in Mexico were not related to my work. I mean, I had police pull me over and take me to an ATM and clean, you know, get, had to give them my daily limit. You know, these are police. Um, you know, there's... There's all kinds of like just the daily life thing in Mexico that often felt unsafe. Was it really? I mean, I've heard that it's very dangerous for journalists in Mexico. It is very dangerous in Mexico. But as I say, primarily it's for these local journalists outside of Mexico City. And I went and talked to some of them um, uh Oh, what was the Zetas uh, were up on the border, sort of up near Monterrey. And um, the, I talked to this one journalist who basically the Zetas picked him up, brought him to the police station and interrogated him at the police station. And the Zetas are... A, the Zetas a, are one of the cartels. They're, um, yeah. Um, yeah, they're... And, so there was like no distinction between the them and the, like the Zetas also had their own press person. I mean, they, they're so powerful. Um, and it was journalists like that that really weren't able to, they weren't able to cover the police. They weren't able to cover the, the, these criminal gangs, which were doing a lot more than just moving drugs. They were often kidnapping people. They were extorting, um, La renta, this, uh, like, what do you call it in English? The, <clears throat> like, uh, basically taxing the local population. Like, you had to pay monthly to, to these guys mm -hmm. for protection. That's what they would refer to it as, protection money. Um, wow. And, yeah, the, the people had nowhere to turn because the politicians weren't going to take it on, the police weren't going to take it on. And then the cartels realized that they didn't want the press also to be a problem. And so they would make examples of these, these local journalists and usually they would kill somebody. And yeah, so there were a lot of journalists getting killed. But again, it was local, for the most part, somebody at a local radio station or um, at a small newspaper in one of these places who crossed the wrong person and told a story that they didn't want told. Did you see that in other places in Central America? I mean, we hear so much about this kind of thing driving people out of the region north. 
yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, Honduras is clearly problematic, and it was problematic, you know, back then. So I, I was in Mexico City as the NPR um, correspondent for that region from 2008 to 2012. Um, and this is at a time when, you know, I mean, we we didn't have like armed conflict in, you know, in, in Central America, but Honduras, um, some of the cities there, San Pedro Sula, uh, had, I think San Pedro Sula had the highest murder rate in the world at that point in time. And again, this was driven by criminal activity for the, and, and terrifying. I mean, there were, there was, uh, conflicts over the like the bus lines like so they have these old school buses which serve as the main public transportation and um certain criminal groups were controlling the bus lines and other people were trying to muscle in on that and there would be a they would like firebomb the bus you know and like so you not just the bus driver but all these people who are on the bus were getting caught up in this and yeah, um, the the level of violence that you were seeing in in these places, and ex- this this extortion system of even for a fairly small amount uh, of money, what we would view as a fairly small amount of money, but a small mom and pop store would on a regular basis have to come up with this, and if they didn't, they would, you know, the consequences would be terrible. Um, for them or for family members or whatever. So, th- yeah, this fear of of violence there is very real. <laughs> and um, you, you definitely saw it then and from everything I've seen since. I've been back a, a few times. Um, yeah, it, it's continuing. This is Alicia Bales. You're listening to an interview with Jason Bobian, NPR's global health reporter. Jason has family in Mendocino County and was gracious enough to sit down for an interview while he was in town this weekend. Well, I definitely want to get to the latest disaster that you've been covering, the global pandemic. Uh, But I want to just stay on the backstory a little bit. Yeah. Because I'm curious if there's anything that you covered that is especially informing what you're doing now? Like, was there anything you experienced in any of these countries, in the developing countries, that now is is really, may have changed the way you're looking at what's happening now or has really informed it? Huh. Um, in terms of COVID, in terms of covering COVID. Um, I mean, it's interesting, like, because I would cover, I covered, um, you know, some of the polio vaccination programs and, um, you know, polio is a fascinating story of a disease that's been pushed to the brink of extinction yet it hasn't been completely wiped out and i've covered that for years this story of are we going to actually get rid of polio and you see through that how difficult it is to get people vaccinated in incredibly remote areas um it's afghanistan and pakistan which continue to be the problems in terms of getting polio wiped out globally. And so globally, people continue to be getting polio vaccine shots simply because we can't get rid of this tiny pocket of it. And if, uh, and if they stop vaccinating, yeah, it will, it'll come back. Polio would come back. Um, so I've seen that. I've seen how hard it is to, um, convince, (laughs) you know, huge 
portions of the world that everybody needs to get vaccinated. Um, so I, I recognized what a huge challenge this is going to be. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, I wasn't going into that with, oh, this will be easy. Um, so that definitely informed that. And just covering other infectious diseases. In February of 2020, I came back from Hong Kong and I had been sent to Hong Kong to help with our China coverage of the early part of the pandemic because Frank Langfitt had left Shanghai to take over the London Bureau. And there was another reporter who was supposed to be going in to uh, take up that post. So we would have two people in China. And then the pandemic started and the Chinese never let him in. So we ended up with only one reporter in China with Wuhan blowing up, right? This incredibly scary thing happening in Wuhan. Tried to get a visa for me, but I couldn't get in. So they said, well, why don't you go to Hong Kong? And for, at least from Hong Kong, there'll be people who are coming out of China. They'll, you can, you'll be close there. And they've also dealt with SARS, which, you know, was clearly the SARS-1, the first SARS. So it seemed like a good place to be. So I was based there for much of January and February. Uh, but I came back to the newsroom at NPR and I'm just like, you guys know we're screwed, right? Like, we're screwed. If, if China is doing what China is doing and that virus is continuing to spread and continuing to pop up in other parts of the world, and here in the United States, we're doing nothing, <laughs> we are, this is going to be terrible. And people were like, oh, I don't know, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe, uh, you know, like, oh, they started calling me the Cassandra of the science desk. And I was just like, this is going to be bad. I just like, it's going to be bad. And um, has, it, has it turned out to be worse than you thought or about what you thought? Um, it's turned out actually to be worse than I thought. Because I, I thought we would deal with a single virus that these variants are really much more um, problematic than I expected them to be. And that is being driven by how much transmission we're getting around the world. Like you're getting more variants because the levels of transmission is huge in a lot of places. And if we'd been able to keep the levels of transmission low, we wouldn't have ended up with these variants. And I thought we were going to be able to do that. Um, I thought that, yeah, I, I kind of thought, I thought that we're going to have a lot of transmission and I thought that the, this virus is going to end up everywhere, but I thought the amount of transmission would be lower. And um, I'm still not confident in terms of, how we're getting through this entirely. And I do have a great fear that even if the United States gets to a level where transmission is really low because we've got enough people vaccinated, that a variant could show up somewhere else that will do the same thing and come back into the U.S. that all of the vaccines that we've had can't deal with, right? And so then we're going to be back in this cycle of, trying to come up with boosters to deal with that and then convincing everybody to go get the booster. And um, I can still see a fairly negative scenario. I, I really hope that doesn't happen. And I think it doesn't have to happen. And I really hope it doesn't happen. Um, but I don't think we are out of the woods at all. 
yet. Um, despite, I think things are, are looking really good in the United States overall. I mean, the U.S. screwed this one up big time in the beginning. I mean, just horribly, almost in spectacular fashion from the early decisions around testing and there were tests on the market that were available it was like it was like no one was taking it seriously in the early days like in february like january in, february january february um and even later than that i mean it took a long time to get testing out there to the point where we knew what was happening and we never even really got contact tracing going because the the cat got out of the bag to such a degree that contact tracing never really worked and the one thing that they did do well was they they managed to throw enough money at the pharmaceutical companies to come up with a vaccine in what really is a remarkably short time. I mean, as somebody who's been covering infectious diseases and vaccines and all that before that, I mean, it really would take, you know, eight, 10 years, 15 years to develop a vaccine before this. It really, that's really what we were looking at. We had never seen a vaccine developed from for an entirely new pathogen produced put onto the market and um that was amazing but if you think about big pharma they came through on that one and there's lots of problems now about how other people and equity and whatnot but at least the the products have been developed we have the tools now <laughs> it's a question of making sure that enough people get vaccinated in the world that we are all protected, right? That is the big challenge right now. And that is no longer a pharmaceutical company problem. That is a political global problem. Right. So you both covered sort of our dawning grasp, our scientific understanding it as it, as it evolved and our medical understanding and the development of the vaccines and you yeah. know the, the, the sort of medical response, but also now the geopolitical the consequences of the geopolitics that you've been covering for years. So how's that been to see the way that the inequities are playing out? Yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate to see that this is sort of repeating itself. Um, it, unfortunately, it shows part of the problem that we have with a WHO, a World Health Organization, that is really quite weak. It is a collection of its member states. It doesn't want to do anything to offend one particular member state. So early on, didn't want to offend China, um, didn't want to offend uh, Brazil when, you know, Brazil wasn't doing enough. Um, they don't want to be overly critical. Um, they don't really have the power to, to come in and say, look, we need this vaccine here right now. It would, I think there's a problem where when we have a world that is so globalized and where people and pathogens can move and goods can move all around the world very quickly. Um, and yet we have no means to deal with problems when those pathogens move around the world completely freely. Basically, we have developed this infrastructure which allows human beings to infiltrate every corner of our, our world. Um, and 
in a way, it's kind of cool. It, it shows us how incredibly connected we are that a pathogen that first showed up in Wuhan, China, my son then ends up sick with it in, you know, his bedroom. That virus is connected to that other virus and it is touched all of these people. And it was like this person had contact with this person. And this. So it, when I say it's cool, I only mean that it illustrates this web of connections around the world that is, I think, often overlooked by a lot of people. <laughs> you know, so you've got, we've built up this infrastructure, which has right. made right. that those webs, right? Yeah. And yet we have no means of addressing it when there's a problem in that web. Well, let me ask you about this, though, because you also covered Ebola, which we seem to respond very well to. So is it a matter of the fact that we had leadership in the United States that was the worse than ineffectual? Is that, is that kind of the key there? No, I think part of the problem, the part of the issue with Ebola is that Ebola is so scary because it's so deadly that it ends up affecting how people, what, what level of risk people are willing to expose themselves to when they're near that pathogen. And that was part of the thing about SARS-CoV-2 was that eh, well, maybe it's like, maybe it's not that bad. I'm young. It's not going to affect me. So there was a lot of um, willingness to accept risk in this one. That's not to say that the political leadership that we had on this was terrible. The silencing of the Centers for Disease Control in the midst of this was almost unconscionable. I mean, this, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and I can say this as someone who has traveled to, I don't even know how many countries, it is respected around the world as this incredible institution of science and medicine. And the fact that they were basically put in the back corner in the midst of the worst health crisis to ever face this country in the last hundred years, it's just almost beyond insane. <laughs> um, it, we really, it really was. And I think that things could have played out a lot better in the United States and a lot fewer people would have died if the CDC had been allowed to have its people do their job. Um, and it's, yeah, I have to say, it's sort of unconscionable that significant number of Americans died because we did not make use of the technological resources at the CDC um, in the midst of this huge health crisis. How was it for you covering it and for NPR? What, what, how were you reacting as you realized that's what was going on? It was incredibly frustrating. It was incredibly frustrating. Um, and you know, to, to watch those Trump press conferences where he's talking about injecting bleach and, uh, I mean, things like, it was just, it, it was, it was very difficult, uh, because on the one hand, you felt like you needed to be covering it. It was the updates from, you know, Fauci was there, Deborah Burks was at these things. Um, and then we actually, at a certain point, we're having debates about whether we should even be covering these things live because who knows what he's going to say. And yeah, we uh, stopped carrying the NPR coverage when he would talk. <laughs> it was a difficult, it was a difficult thing as a news organization. Like, right. all right, so this is playing out in your 
world, the world that you cover, what do you do, right? I like, um, but yeah, also they would go on for <laughs> incredible amounts of time. So, uh, I mean, it, we started becoming more judicious about what we, we would broadcast. Yeah, actually, on. we did notice at a certain point, you just weren't doing it anymore because yeah. we were making the choice. Well, I ran one of them and it was the one where he brought all of the, the pharmacy CEOs uh-huh. and it was, I ran it because I thought he, he was supposed to be um, declaring it a state of emergency. And I thought, well, that's, our listeners really need to hear that. And it turned out to be this sort of commercial for all of these pharmacy companies. And I said, that's the last time we're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you guys kind of stopped after a while, we too. Did. Yeah, we did. After a while, we stopped carrying them live. And, um, you know, we would go and we would have reporters there and we would be recording the whole thing. And, um, and then we would make a decision about, okay, what here is worth broadcasting and what isn't. You're listening to an interview with Jason Bobian, global health reporter for NPR News. He spoke with KZYX while he was in town this weekend. I'm Alicia Bales. And now, okay, so let's talk a little bit about India since that seems to be really on the front burner right now. Yeah. Have you what have you been covering it? So I actually haven't been covering India a lot, in part because we've got uh, Lauren Frere who's there on the ground. I mean, I have been following what's happening in India, and but mainly just from that big picture um, global perspective. Um, again, it is it is surprising this late in this pandemic to see this explosion of cases that we're seeing in India. Clearly, India had transmission that was happening earlier. The virus was there, right? And so they were being exposed to it. So the question comes, what is it that ends up driving this current catastrophe that's happening in India? And it's the variants. It's these variants that are um, that are causing this. Um, I see no other, no other explanation. And, you know, the people we've been talking to, again, also see no other, no other explanation. And yeah, it's, it's quite frightening what's happening in India. And it makes you also start to worry about places like Haiti, places like, um, you know, Nigeria, um, Ethiopia, places that have had very low numbers, really. Are you going to see that same thing start to happen when a new variant comes in. Um, and if that happens, this pandemic could really start to, um, if we start having flashpoints around the globe, similar to what we were having in India, um, popping up, it, it's going to just, it's going to prolong the pandemic and it's going to just turn this into even more of a crisis. And, and I see no reason why that won't happen. <laughs> Unfortunately, I mean, I, the variant that's spreading in India, it's going to turn up in, in Africa. So, yeah, I, I still feel it's, it's, it's quite concerning what's happening on a global level mm-hmm. with this. And also it's concerning because there are places in the world, like Haiti hasn't distributed any vaccine yet. Um, there's a lot of places in Africa that only 1% of the population has been vaccinated. So even the potential benefit that vaccines could be providing are not out there acting as a shield. So, and the timeline that we're looking at to get even a small proportion of those populations vaccinated is well into 2022, right? 2022. Yeah. Um, 
and who knows what's going to, this is May at the moment, who knows what's going to happen over the next, um, you know, seven months, uh, eight months here. So what does this mean for the world? It means there's going to be the, the developed countries are going to have access to effective vaccines and the rest of the world is just going to burn? It's a, um, it's a very interesting question. I mean, there, the global vaccine production at the moment is just completely tapped out. I mean, the, there's, there, was, there wasn't, and this is, again, to give credit to what was the Trump administration at that point, Operation Warp Speed basically said, here's an almost unlimited amount of money, go for it. And that probably should have been happening on a global scale too, because if that had happened on a global scale, more manufacturing facilities would maybe right now be coming online. All of a sudden, now we're talking about getting more vaccine manufacturing facilities coming online, but we're talking about it now for ones that might, at the best case scenario, come online in four months, right? I mean, it's, it's producing, particularly an RNA vaccine like a Pfizer or Moderna, is not simple. This is, takes a, a level of sophistication in terms of the technology uh, and the, the inputs and the supplies and all that. It, it's a very complicated process. And that's what they're talking about with uh, Biden wanting to release the patents. Yes. Um, and overall, that idea, I think, makes a lot of sense, right? The U.S. government poured a lot of money into helping these guys develop these patents. Um, they can say, yeah, you should make them free, uh, freely available to, to other people. The, I have talked to manufacturers in India that want to get in on this, and their problem isn't getting hold of the the intellectual property. It's it's getting the inputs that they need, the the particular types of glass that they need for some of the vials that hold these things. They're they're running into shortages of that. They're running into all kinds of problems just getting basic supplies for the vaccines that they're currently trying to produce. So, well. The idea of just saying, okay, here's the recipe. Um, you know, the guy at the garage down the street can't just produce it. It and I don't know whether it's going to do much good in 2021. But we might be in this for a while, and so um, it it could be beneficial in the longer run. And then you may, but you may end up running into issues with the pharmaceutical companies um, being the, the the current ones, Pfizer and Moderna and other ones maybe making things more difficult because now they're upset about this. Who knows what's going to happen with that? But I mean, Pfizer is already being unbelievably hard on these countries where they're trying to negotiate uh, deals. Argentina ran trials for Argentina, for, for, for Pfizer. They ran clinical trials for Pfizer. They were one of the first countries to finish up their clinical trials and actually get them published in one of the major medical journals. Um, and then the Argentine government wasn't able to negotiate with Pfizer and work out a, an agreement to actually get any of the doses of Pfizer. They, Argentina ended up starting with Sputnik from the Russians because they couldn't work out a deal with Pfizer. They had the money to buy it. It's been... the, the these companies have been um, put in an incredible position of holding 
an incredibly scarce resource and can set the terms of how they are going to um, distribute it. And it's not usually the price that's the problem. It's other ag agreements on um, how it's being going to be transported and indemnification clauses and um, all kinds of things like that that they can't seem to work out. But they've had an unbelievable amount of power in the marketplace in terms of who they're going to sell to and who they're not. That is jaw-dropping. I mean, these are people's lives. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's true. It, these are people's lives. But it's also an unbelievable point that we've ended up in where the entire world is seeking these vaccines. And you're, you're getting this confluence of things happening. The entire world is seeking these vaccines at exactly the same moment, which is now. The virus is continuing to spread at a rate which we haven't even seen in the past. Right now, globally, it is spreading at a faster rate than at any other time in this entire pandemic. It continues to increase. So the pressure on governments to get the vaccine is incredibly high. They worked out a lot of negotiations on contracts and whatnot, and okay, we'll buy your, your production from your factory. Uh, we'll buy the June production from the factory. But that June stuff wasn't gonna get to them until the end of July or August, given, um, so even with this attempts to purchase vaccines, purchasing vaccine that's gonna be delivered in August doesn't do you any good right now, particularly if you're a country where you've got people dying out in front of your hospitals and your ICUs are all full. Um, this is clearly going to be a one of these things in history where there was the pre-pandemic and there was the post-pandemic. And um, the, the big question is, how long is it going to take us to get to that post-pandemic period? And I don't want to be overly pessimistic about it, but when I look out at the world, and it was the outside world that brought this pandemic <laughs> to our shores, to our doors, to our bedrooms, when that outside world has still got that much virus um, out circulating, I'd be really worried. I was in Hong Kong in February and January of 2020, and I saw, you know, the amount of basically virus. I almost could like feel like I could see the amount of virus out there, right? And it was like in Wuhan, and there was like, wow, there's a fair amount of virus there, and we're looking at these case numbers, and I found that really concerning. That's nothing compared to what we're seeing now, right? So um, that's why this is this is concerning. And, you know, humans will eventually get to the point where enough of us have been infected and whatnot that, um, you know, potentially this becomes just like another common cold. Um, but the, the fatality rates that we've been having on this are incredibly high. I mean, it's become the leading killer in many countries in the world. Um, yeah, there are a whole bunch of Latin American countries, which I did a story in late, last year, um, I had found six Latin American countries where it was already the leading cause of death. Uh, and I haven't followed up since then. Um, so it's definitely more than that. But that's significant, right? This new thing that didn't exist at the beginning of the year. And now, now before you even finish 2020, it all of a sudden become the leading cause of death in these countries. Um, you know, those, these death rates will, will go down as we move forward and more and more people are either immune because they've been exposed or gotten vaccinated. 
and I do think we'll get to a point where there's more of a, a balance, but this is not going to be over in a couple of years, right? This we're, we're this is going to continue to be out there as a as a a problem that hasn't gotten to just like the annual flu thing for for a while here. Are there things like you were talking about the WHO being a kind of a, a weak spot that that we humans we cannot respond fast enough and we're seeing it as we chase it around the globe and right now it's India but you know there's going to be other hot spots that were kind of behind the curve. Are there things that could be done on a human scale that could change this destiny that we have? Um, I mean, I do think that the WHO's proposed idea, which is this COVAX program, which is supposed to get 20% of the populations of, of pretty much 180 countries, 184 countries, something like that, have signed up for this, get at least 20% of their populations, of their most vulnerable people, vaccinated by the end of this year. That is their goal. I actually think that's a very good goal. And it would also, from a public health perspective, attack where the virus is most likely to be, um, you know, most effective as a virus, right? It's going to be getting healthcare workers vaccinated, getting elderly in communal settings vaccinated. It's going to be, you, you look at the population, you look at who's most likely to get it, who's most likely to suffer if they get it, and get them vaccinated. You can, like, Take the sting out of this, right? Kind of what we just did in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if that could happen, that would be really effective. And it would also bring down the overall amount of virus and ca cases that are out there. So you're using the, your limited amount of vaccine in the most effective way. They have run into just all these problems of getting a hold of doses. I think there needs to be more of an understanding of the urgency of this because the US is sitting on stockpiles of AstraZeneca, which hasn't even been approved by the US Food and Drug Administration. And the Food and Drug Administration doesn't look like they're in any hurry to actually get it approved. And we could give that stuff away right now to countries that really need it. And if we decide we want to use AstraZeneca, take the production that comes off the line in June or July, right? But we've, like, we don't need it. Is it being produced here in the U.S.? I'm not sure where it's being produced, but I know that the U.S., it. we have it. <laughs> um, and which was part of this overall idea to incentivize the companies to get out there and make it even before, even before it's approved, which was a really good idea because that was the type of forward thinking that needed to happen so that as soon as the clinical trials got done, as soon as the regulators approved it, they could start vaccinating immediately, which is not at all how it used to work in terms of vaccine production. You know, it used to be they would come up with an idea, we're going to vaccinate it against, you know, whatever, and we're going to run clinical trials, and then we get to the end of the clinical trials, then we're going to go through the um, you know, the approval process, and oh, we might get approval, we might not, so we're not going to start making any until... And, and basically, they overlapped all of those processes with the idea that um, as soon as it gets approved, we're going to have millions and millions and millions of doses ready to go. Um, and that was true with Pfizer. It's true with Moderna. It's true with Johnson & Johnson. It's true with AstraZeneca, which is sitting on all of these doses. Um, I, I think 
the Biden administration seems to recognize the, the problem that we're facing on an international level. And that was part of why they, they said that they're going to agree to this idea of lifting the, the patent rights on, on these particular products, at least in a temporary way that uh, India and South Africa have really been pushing for that at the World Trade Organization. The efficacy on these vaccines is fabulous compared to what they were actually expecting. Like early on, they were saying, you know, if we could get something that's like 50% effective, that would be great. And when Pfizer and Moderna came in with an efficacy rate in the mid 90s, it was like, wow. Um, and there's been criticism of AstraZeneca for they've gotten numbers all over the place. Like there's been some studies in Brazil that showed AstraZeneca is about 50% efficacy. Others have shown it in the 70s. Um, mainly, most of the studies are showing it somewhere in the 70s, which is pretty good. It's quite good. That's And if we could get more of that out into the world, it would be it would it could make an impact. I, the actual politics over exactly why that isn't happening um, is not something I've been covering, and I don't completely know. But I do feel like there's more of an understanding that this the global problem needs to be attacked aggressively, or we're just going to have variants coming flooding back in, and we have no idea what that the impact of that is, is going to be on us. Well, we, what you were just describing with the the way that the the testing, how it came to be approved, mm -hmm. that's like the main thing that people who are vaccine hesitant point to. It was just too fast. Um, so, can you comment on that? Whether it was too fast or you felt that it was quite thorough, or and, and how safe the vaccine is? I think that the 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 processes were just like on other vaccines. They, you know. With a clinical trial, they do the safety first in just a small number of people getting this vaccine. Usually they actually test it on animals first. Then they do a, a, a phase one study, and it's a fairly small group. Um, then the phase two sometimes gets merged with phase three, but phase three will be thousands, maybe 30,000, maybe 40,000 people who either get half of them getting a placebo, half of them getting um, the actual drug. And that's how you would normally do a phase th three uh, study. And then they actually wait in that study to see in the, in the overall of everybody. So hopefully it's in the placebo group that you're seeing uh, the actual disease occur. And once they see enough happen, then they will conclude the phase three study. So they, they don't actually know how long it's going to take to do that phase three study, but they didn't rush any of that. Um, and there's Novavax is still waiting to wrap up some of its phase three studies, in part because the numbers of cases in the places that they've been studying have been dropping. So they haven't been getting as, they need to get to a certain threshold of numbers of cases. Um, so there has been a condensation of the process but not a skimping on the process. And there was so much there was so much virus around that they got to the numbers fairly quickly in phase three, right? They did. Yeah, they did. Um, Lucky. Lucky yes. for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm Alicia Bales, and you're listening to an interview with Jason Bobian, global health reporter for NPR News. He spoke with KZYX while he was in town this weekend. Okay, um, 
I have been talking with you for a long time, so I'm going to let you go. Okay. But I have a couple more like bigger kind of philosophical sure, questions sure. that I'm sort of interested in when I think about radio. Yeah. Um, and one of them is... How do you, who are your listeners in your mind? Like, who are you doing this for? Who do you think is listening? And do they, do they reach out to you? Do you ever hear from them? <laughs> I mean, I'm always amazed when I hear from people that, you know, they heard that story or, um, right. yeah, that somebody like remembered some sound that I had in a story about like, I was talking to the guy recently, and he was saying, oh, yeah, you had that story about that kid in the refugee camps in uh, in Bangladesh, and there was, like, this sound of, like, the kite. You could, like, hear the sound of the kite. And I don't even remember that. <laughs> but it was so touching that, like, that that that, that came through. And this is somebody that, you know, I'd, I'd never met the person before, and they but they remembered that sound. And... It, it, it is interesting. Sometimes in radio, it feels like you're all by yourself. You're out doing what you're doing and you're putting together this, this story and you're just trying to get it produced. And um, I mean, I don't, it's almost, particularly with NPR, which we, something goes on morning edition, like millions of people can hear it in the morning. It's kind of like overwhelming to even think about that. You know, it's a little bit mind blowing. Um, so I, I don't try to think about all of those those people, um, but it's always wonderful when you run into somebody who mm. remembers one of your stories, or remembers some detail from one of your stories. It's it's always nice. Yeah, well, I, I agree. Or you're just in a soundproof room with a microphone. You know, even if you're live, it can feel sort of like just you and a mic, or you and your guest and a mic. Yeah. But there's something, some sense of it, some imagination in your mind about who. Or what it's for, you know? Do you have Do you have any sense of what it's for? See, I I just feel like it's really important that people hear from a lot of these different places, and like I, I know there's some people who view it very much as an act of like activism, and I don't view it as a an act of activism. I view it as just I think that if people hear from a town that's in the midst of an Ebola outbreak, then they hear like just the woman at the store and how afraid she is of her customers that like that that enriches the world, right? That and that I don't feel like I'm I don't I don't want to be telling people anything. I just want I want to be showing them, right? I mean, it's sort of a thing in. Um, you know, in creative writing in San Francisco State, they always said, you know, um, show, don't tell. Um, and so this idea of just showing what's happening in the world. And sometimes I don't feel like I have the answer to what's going on, right? But it's worth just explaining this is happening. This is, um, I don't know how it's going to get solved. I don't know... Um, whether these guys are the good guys or the bad guys, but this is what's happening here. And I feel like it's important that we understand um, what's happening outside of our borders, which is mainly what I cover, um, because we are in such a globalized world, whether we like it or not, whether it was a good thing or not, that these, these things happened. As we were talking about earlier, you know, COVID just shows us that 
um, it's almost a little bit too big when you start thinking about it. But this idea that um, if you want to believe that you can just rough it out and you're a little like get get your ranch and you're on your own, I'm sorry, that's just not the world we live in, right? It's just not the world we live in. And um, yeah, so I just try to tell stories yeah. that um, bring people a little bit of a connection to other parts of the world. Okay, so that leads perfectly to my last question, okay. which is, okay, so we're a rural community, right? Yep. Um, and we get quite, we're, we're very interested in what's happening here, you know, but as somebody who covers what's happening all over the world, how would you sort of explain to folks here why, why those stories matter? You know, and how those stories affect us here. Um, yeah, I mean, COVID is, again, the perfect example of it, right? I mean, people here were ending up sheltering in place. I'm sure people got sick. I'm sure people have lost friends and relatives. Um, you know, so, you know, these stories matter on that front. Um, you know, the, the migration issues that we, we have, um, you know, if... If people are living in Honduras and feel like they have no chance of having a decent life for them or their children, right? When you got a parent who looks at their kids and goes, I don't want my kids living like this. And I know that things could be better somewhere else. That has an impact everywhere, you know, in these rural communities up here in, in Mendocino County and, you know, big cities and New York and LA, um, those issues that are playing out in San Pedro Sula in Honduras or in, you know, Guatemala City, they affect what happens down the street from you. Um, whether you like it or not, and whether it's a good thing or not a good thing, at a certain point, we need to have our eyes open to the reality of, of the world. And uh, I think that that is sort of the importance of some of the work we do trying to make sure that there's a bit more of an understanding that it's not just, um, oh, San Pedro Sula is the murder capital of the world. And that that's the only, that, that means nothing, right? That, what does that mean? But to understand that a mother is terrified for herself, for her children, um, terrified to the point where she's willing to like ride on top of a train across parts of Mexico um, and do all kinds of things just to get to the border. Um, you know, I think that is, that's what we're, we're trying to do is to tell those stories that give that all a bit more context. Thank you. You're welcome. That was really fun. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> that was Jason Bobian. NPR's global health reporter. You can find all of Jason's reporting on the pandemic at our website, kzyx.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Alicia Bales. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willetson Zukaya 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.